about 80 degrees and pretty nice. And I, I understand you might be a little hot there from a comment I heard. Hope it isn't too bad. Uh, do plan to be with you next Sabbath. Uh, as God willing and the crick don't rise, as they used to say, that's the plan anyway. I look at what's going on in our nation and around the world, and I think here I am going through the book of Ephesians at the moment, <clears throat> and maybe I ought to be talking more about prophecy and some of the things that are fitting what the Bible says, and yet uh, you have minds and understanding, and we've been through so many of those scriptures so many times that we should have a pretty good idea of what is going on and why uh, every day that goes by, it seems now, and it's increasing very rapidly, we see those things in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets coming to pass in the nation just as they have come to pass in the church. So uh, it is a story being repeated on a national and international level that we have seen already within the church and among ourselves. And it's not a pretty picture, but it is intensifying very rapidly. They seem to be pulling out all stops to <clears throat> do what they can to destroy our food supply and everything else uh, about us. And it's pretty much right out in the open now where I think most Americans are beginning to realize at least that all is not well. Now that we have direct threats openly against former presidents and congressmen and various ones uh, saying we will execute an ex-president, it's getting pretty up much in the open. And that scripture in Jeremiah comes to mind, Isaiah, or Jeremiah 50 and 51, those two chapters about our nation right now and how there will be violence in the land, ruler against ruler. And it seems pretty clear that they're trying to perpetrate a civil war to further weaken us for the kill shot to come. So I suppose enough said on that at the moment, but I sure we're very aware and very alert to what is going on, and I'm truly encouraged by it because we've been reading these scriptures for many, many years and knowing what had to occur for them to be fulfilled, and now we see it before our very eyes and that God knew all along what would happen, how it would happen, and even gives us quite a few details about what is now going on and will in the near future. So God is God, and he foretells the future perfectly. We don't always see it perfectly, and he doesn't always intend for us to. Some things he holds back that he knows that are not ready for us to know. And we've seen that throughout history, that... He only gives a certain amount of knowledge here, a certain amount there, and then withholds certain things, just as he did with the early apostles. So some things have been withheld from the end-time church, and some even within the church said, well, Herbert Armstrong was a false prophet because he thought this was going to happen, and it didn't. 
Well, no. He had the truth. Essentially, the basic outline of truth. And God used him to do a work. Of course, he didn't understand everything. And I've made this point many times. Because he was not going to be around to even see it. And God knew that. But he didn't know that. So he kept working hard. Uh, thinking that it was all going to happen in his lifetime. And now here we are, the rest of us, much younger than him, but growing older, and it's going to have to hurry to do it within our lifetime. But I think that it is indeed going to happen within our lifetime, and very, very soon, because we see it accelerating before our very eyes. So let's get on back to Ephesians, which I think is just as or more important than the prophetic things, because Paul was talking again to the Ephesian church who had lost their first love, just as we did, and that doesn't make us the Ephesian era by any means, and I'm not saying that. I'm saying that those seven messages were addressed to all of us, and that the church, by and large, had left a lot of its first love and were taking things for granted. So Paul wrote this to them in the same message as there in Revelation 2 from John, that they needed to be very much aware and thankful for what God has given and not let it begin to be taken for granted because we have such a tremendous and wonderful future that we cannot even comprehend. I was thinking about that a bit this morning, that we're so small, so puny, so finite, made in the image of God, yes, put on a beautiful earth, but there's just no comparison whatsoever between us and God. And Job was missing a little bit of that factor. Uh, he was a righteous man. He was a wealthy man. He was a successful man in every way we know of. And he thought he was pretty important. And in one sense, he was very important. Every human being is important to the plan and purpose of God. And yet he did not quite grasp and comprehend the vastness of the gulf between being human and being God. And God helped him to see through trials, troubles, and tribulations just how human he was in comparison to God who is not subject to these human things. And the way I was thinking about it this morning was the energy, the power of God throughout the universe, the heat, the light, the, the presence throughout the universe that he is. We are very finite. You and I can be in one little two-square-foot place standing on the earth somewhere, and we don't amount to much. Not very big around, not very tall, and not very powerful. And as we age, it hits us more and more how very little power we have. 
When we're younger, we move about easier and better. We can accomplish more things on a physical level. And then as you get older and older, you become more decrepit and injury-ridden and disease-ridden and everything else. To the point you can hardly do anything by the time you reach the age of nearing death. So we kind of unwind, and that's part of the process that is so important uh, that I think we need to see even here in the book of Ephesians that we are so minuscule compared to God. And that's why even though Paul explained it to people in various places in the scriptures, Thessalonians, here in Ephesians, and other places, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the power, the wonders of God, of immortality, and yet, even with his understanding, having been taught by Christ himself, he still called it a great mystery. And he said the mystery will not be revealed until the last trump. When we are changed from mortal to immortal is when the mystery will come clear. Because no matter how much we imagine, no matter how much we meditate, we cannot grasp the infinity and the power of the sovereign of the universe, which is far beyond what we can begin to comprehend. And at best, we look through a glass darkly. And we see these things, we read these things, and the apostles themselves did not completely grasp the mystery because it is so huge. And we should meditate on it, on what it will be, so that we can focus on the kingdom of God and being there and taking what is in the Bible expanding in our minds to try to picture and comprehend the enormity of what is coming so that it creates motivation and desire and interest within us to be such a part of such a great thing. Uh, we can see it on a small basis sometimes, uh, Dreams, aspirations that people have. It's like little boys. I know when I was a kid, we'd collect baseball cards or football cards or whatever of those stars of different sports. And I guess the dream of most American boys is that someday they might grow up to be a sports star. It's huge today, bigger than it was when I was a kid, for instance. They want to be a, an NBA or a NFL star. And they dream about it and think about it. And they go out and practice many, many long hours trying to get better. Most of them will never achieve that dream. And even the ones that do find that it isn't quite as exciting and quite as rewarding as they might have thought in their dreams from boyhood. But people have different dreams of things they want to be. And sports just came to mind. Uh, of the things you think about as a child and want to be when you grow up. And they seem <clears throat> so far away and so unreachable. And yet in your fantasies, 
you picture yourself having done it, having accomplished it. And those childhood dreams we need to translate into spiritual understanding and dreams and thoughts and meditation. And that's part of what meditation is, is taking these words of God about him, about his kingdom, about the future, and that's what the Bible is all about, and imagining it and desiring it and working toward it, uh, going through the prayer, the study, the meditation, the thought processes uh, that are necessary to prepare ourselves for it, just as kids do to prepare for a sport or the Olympics or whatever it is that they are excited about. We have to go through that, and it helps us. Of course, you have to go from just dreams to fulfillment. And that is required by God, is that we don't just dream about something, but that we overcome, grow, prepare, and make ourselves acceptable as much as possible to God, so that he might grant us uh, a part of that kingdom. So we look forward to it, and we turn it from dream into reality with our works, with the things that we do to prepare. You know, there are a lot of people in the world that are dreamers. But that's all they ever do is dream about what they want to do or be someday. And they never get off their duff and make the dreams come true. Because those dreams that people have will never come true unless they create and do what they thought about and dreamed of doing and being. You have to be a doer, not a dreamer. Now, it takes a certain amount of dreaming. It takes a certain amount of thought to create a goal and a purpose. But then you have to do something about it. If you don't get the training, if you don't go through what is necessary, it'll never happen. So you have people who dream of whatever it is, all their life, and never achieve any of it. And others go out and actually do it. So it takes both. And in Christianity, it certainly takes both. We need to take time to meditate on these things. Uh, I think people get messed up a little bit or don't comprehend meditation. Prayer, you can understand. You go through the effort of praying. Bible study, you open your book, and you read the Bible. Meditation is perhaps a little vague in that sense, but it simply means to think about these things, to mold them over, to, in one way, fantasize or dream of the things that are ahead that we don't fully comprehend. And I think that that's where Gerald Waterhouse was a great boon to the church, is that he would read about the kingdom of God and the various scriptures, and then he would translate that into how he pictured it. And some of the things he pictured, yeah, I can see that in that scripture. Some of the things he pictured were bizarre to people, and they would say, well, he can't prove that. No, it was 
a thought process. And I looked upon him as an artist who thought about and meditated on the scriptures and tried to translate that in his own human mind into how it could be, what the reality could be. And, of course, he didn't get every brush stroke right. Anybody painting a picture does not get all the brush strokes right. They have to paint some out and redo them. Uh, and some artists are better than others and get more of them right, and their painting turns out better. Uh, but Gerald Waterhouse would think about these things and translate them in his own mind. Of course they weren't all correct. But I looked upon it when I listened to him as painting a picture and realized that just because he was a minister, he was an evangelist, didn't mean that every word he said was God-breathed and God-inspired. It was simply based on Scripture and his imagination about how that might apply. And you and I do that all the time. We read a scripture and we imagine how that might happen, how that might occur. And sometimes we might be right on, sometimes we're off a little, and sometimes we don't get it right at all. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't think about these things and try to grasp what God is saying the best way we can, and they need to be very important to us. I was actually myself pretty well fascinated with the things Gerald Waterhouse would say. I didn't agree with all of them. I pictured them different myself. But was my picture any better than his picture? Who can say? We see how, thing, how God does things. And what I always remind myself of and try to keep in mind is that I can imagine and I can say how I think it might be, but I don't always know what God is doing. What I am thankful for is that God always knows what he is doing. I can imagine, and I might be wrong, but he is the sovereign of the universe, and he never makes mistakes, and he knows exactly what he's doing. So when I read prophecy, I try to understand it in the context and put it with other scriptures and think about the kingdom of God and what has to happen before it gets here, and it draws a picture in my mind. It may not be a perfect picture, and in fact, I'm sure it isn't, and over the decades, I've learned that it is not. Sometimes, we just simply don't think of it the way God does. But our stinking thinking is a lot different than his godly thinking. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't think and try. And that's part, I think, of what Paul is getting at here is we need to be immersed in the things of God and thoughts about God and not taking it for granted and just sort of coasting along because he says, those who overcome will be in my kingdom. Not those that coast along and halfway keep the Sabbath, and halfway go to the feast, and halfway do everything they do. That is not biblical. 
There are lots of scriptures that show whatever our hands find to do, do it with your might. And to be full of zeal and energy for the things of God. And they had lost that. And I think the church as a whole here in the end time did the same thing. So there's nothing really much more important we could be talking about right now than that. And that's the warning in Matthew 24. He said that we're to be aware, uh, not to fear these things that we see, but that we have to endure to the end. We have to maintain godly attitudes, godly character, uh, living the way of God to the end, and not give up or quit or coast along ever, but to be full of energy and excitement at the greatest thing in the universe that is being offered to us. So then when Paul finishes pretty much with that in in 5, he goes on to show that the marriage relationship should be on the same level as Christ and the church relationship, and that we learn about our eternal relationship with him by the things we go through in physical human marriage. And we should come to understand that spiritual relationship as a result. So he goes into showing how we should treat each other with kindness, with gentleness, with love, with tenderness. Uh, A man is in charge, but he is not the overlord. His wife should not feel intimidated by him. Uh, He's going to do things at times that pinch her, things that are things he wants, things he wants done, the way he wants it done, and he will not consider her feelings and her needs, and just sort of steamrolls over her because he can. And then she gets to the point, she's a little afraid to bring something up because she knows she might get castigated or corrected or or mistreated or abused mentally or emotionally if she does. So she just keeps her mouth shut and suffers and becomes what we used to sometimes call a martyred myrtle. If your wife is afraid to approach you, if she has a need or a hurt or something you're doing or thinking or saying or the way you act that creates problems for her and she can't, respectfully come and feel free to talk about it, then there's something decidedly wrong in the relationship, and it needs to be fixed. And women sometimes, in this day and age, I think particularly, think that they've been liberated and they should run things, and they even sometimes intimidate and abuse the husband. And he has a right to speak up. But it needs to be done in a loving, kind, gentle way so that you understand each other better, not just fight with each other. And that takes some doing because human relationships are simply difficult. So he goes into chapter 6 then and it turns to the relationship of the child to parent, first of all, Children, obey your parents in the eternal, for this is right. 
But he's talking here to the children themselves, not just to the adults, let's say, in the congregation. Uh, he wasn't preaching live at this particular moment. He was writing a letter to them. But it was to be read to man, woman, and child, and he sees fit to adjust the children, or I mean to address the children themselves. But they need to obey their parents. Now, why does he say that? Well, because primarily children do not want to obey their parents. They want to do what they want to do. If the parent says, do this, then they say, I want to do that. So there's contrariness and rebellion and selfishness built in to every human being. And it comes out very, very early in life. But God says, and that's God's word through Paul here, the children should obey their parents. Now, another relationship we have as adults, humanly, with God is that of being with children. So we have the father-son relationship as well as the marital relationship with Christ. And are we supposed to obey our father and our mother the church? Well, yes. They are our parents. Uh, the church takes the mother part in the relationship we have with God right now. The Father is in charge. The Father sets the rules. The Mother is there as a representative of God to teach, guide, lead, strengthen, inspire, uh, cause the children to look to their Father. Never is the Mother to come between the father and the children. Same in a physical marriage. The mother is there to point the children to their father, not to compete with the father for their attention. If you're competing for the attention of your children, you're doing it wrong. A mother works with the children day in and day out, many more hours, generally, than does the father, and it should be that way, generally. But it is her job to build up the father and to point the children to him as the ultimate leader of the family. Then you have a peace and cooperation because the children are taught by the mother to serve the father. Mother should never become, come between the father and the children. Just as the church, as a matter of government, should never try to become an in-line authority between God and the members of the church, other children. The ministry are part of the children as well, but they are put in the position of motherhood, and the scripture even calls it the mother. So... There's not a direct line where you have the father, the mother in between, and then the children. The mother is a little bit to the side. That child should always have access to his father. Just as we, as humans, should always have direct access to our father in heaven. The church, the mother, is there to point us to our father in heaven. 
That's the job of the church. Not to get in the way, not to get in between, but to point to the supreme authority. And that's why God set up the family as he did, so that it might picture the relationship we have spiritually. So we, as God's children, as adults, are here to obey our Father. And our little children are in a position to obey their physical parents. And that's part of the way, and a major part of the way, they learn to sometime respect God. Hopefully they'll get it. But they need to be taught it when they're little. They may depart from it. But Proverbs says that when they're old, they'll think about it, and they'll return to their roots for the most part. We can't make them do it. We can't coerce them. It's something they have to go through life and trial and difficulty and come to themselves. All we can do is try to be the best example we should be and leave them alone and let God deal with them because he knows how. And we'll mess it up, but he won't. He knows when to call them, how to call them, what to call them, and everything else about it. So we, once they reach age 20, need to be basically hands-off. At that point, God considers them adults. And then, as an adult, if they want to approach us and ask for advice, fine. But if they want to be pigs and prodigal sons and daughters, then we let them go. And we let them do the things they're going to do and hope that someday they wise up and come back because they're tired of eating with the pigs. But the father in that story never went out to try to find out what the son was doing. He didn't follow up on it at all. He went on living his life, trying to serve God, and the one son stayed with him and did the same. But he simply turned loose and let him go. You want to do that? Go for it. I can't stop you anyway, and all you'll do if I try is resent me. So, why bother? God loves them more than you do. Let him handle them. And then if they want your input and advice, they'll come and get it. If they don't, it won't do any good, and they'll resent it, and it won't help your relationship at all. Let go and let God is what you have to do. Let them learn the hardships. You know, so many people bail their kids out, bail them out, bail them out. I watched my grandfather do that with two of his sons. Two of them didn't drink at all, and two of them drank everything they could find. And they'd get in jail. He'd go bail them out. Sorry, buttons, he'd call them, and he'd go bail them out. And he expected them to learn. No, you don't bail them out. You let them sit there and learn. So many want to bail their kids out financially. No, let them learn to manage on their own. You can't manage for them, and bailing them out just teaches them, I don't have to manage, I'll get bailed out. You don't do that. That's not the way God does it. It's not the way the prodigal son's father did it. 
God lets us go through it down here until he decides what he is going to do with us. And I see fathers, I see mothers. They just can't leave it alone. they got to bail them out. they got to finance them. they got to get them out of jail. they got to do this with them. No, let them learn the hard way. That's God's way of approaching it. But we get so emotional that we can't do it God's way. So we do it our way. And what it does is create problems for us, and it doesn't solve any of the kids' problems. they got to solve them the right way if they ever solve them. And God will work with them at some point in either this life or the second resurrection. You can bet on it. He says he will. And he loves them more than you do. So let go and let God. Parents have trouble with that. Anyway, uh, children obey your parents, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise. How does God handle this? The fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother. And of course, the first and most important level is our father in heaven that we are to honor, and then our physical parents as well. But is he down here bailing out mankind every other day? Is he down here with eight billion people making sure that they stay out of jail, make sure they stay out of dying stupidly? Is he down here giving them a new job because they blew this one? Is he down here taking care of all this? Nope. He is letting mankind go their way. And he is, has a plan and a purpose when he will step in. And he will step in at the right time, and it will turn out right. But if he stepped in now, he would be resented and hated. And when he sends two witnesses to this world to tell them, finally, that he is God and that they need to obey him, they will be resented and hated by every human being on earth except those that are under God's protection. And they will eventually be killed for their trouble. So any time, prematurely, we try to intervene with our own children, we screw it up. That's all there is to it. And if God intervened prematurely, it would be screwed up. He's not even beginning to intervene until he sends the two, and that's right at the end, when he begins to intervene and do something about it. And most of those people are going to die and come up in the second resurrection, and then they'll be willing to listen. But they're not going to listen no way, no how, until that occurs. So God's commandment is to love him, is to honor him, is to keep his rules, his laws, but he lets us break them. Almost universally, he lets us break them. Once he begins to work directly with us by calling us, he works with us much more closely, and he chases us, and he encourages us. He does what is necessary to teach us and correct us and keep us on path, but until we voluntarily submit to him, 
He leaves us alone. And we need to do with our children the same way God does with us. I have children out there that I disagree with the direction they're going in life, but I leave them alone. I don't even bring anything up unless they show interest. And at the moment, that's basically only one. And he will listen. The others, eh, throw it off or resent it or don't like it or just simply disagree and go their way. So I'm wasting my breath. And God would be wasting his breath right now. Herbert Armstrong preached all over the world, pretty much. And the world pretty much ignored him. So it wasn't time for an intervention yet. And God is just now getting around to that a little bit. And he won't really get into it until he sends the two to stick their nose in it and then wind the whole thing up. So we need to take some lessons from God. That it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Life is simply better and lasts longer if we honor our father and our mother and the rules that they put down and our heavenly father and our mother of the church with the rules that God has put in place. Life is just better and has less problems. But a lot of our kids who grew up in the church don't comprehend this, and they decided they could go out in the world and do better on their own. Okay, let them go. Maybe when they wake up someday with the pigs, they'll come home, and we can deal with them. You fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the eternal. Teach them about God. You nurture them with the things of God. Nurture means food. Nurture means sustenance. It means taking care of. And always in the light of God's way of life. And he hits on something here that a lot of fathers tend to do. They want things the way they want them. And sometimes they don't consider the child's feelings, and they push them to where they get angry and wrathful. And that's the wrong kind of pressure. Now, God expects discipline from fathers, and we have perhaps an imbalance the other direction at the moment in our society where you don't dare hurt the little darling's feelings and you don't want to de destroy their psyche uh, by punishing them or by hurting them with a paddle uh, or taking away privileges, you don't dare do that because the little things just have to be de developed naturally into wonderful, upstanding human beings uh, without their little psyches being injured. And that produces the kind of garbage we have today is a generation or two of children growing up who have no self-control, have total selfishness and narcissism, and can't get along with anybody. The only thing they get along with is a screen, for the most part. And, no, they haven't been provoked to wrath, but they also haven't been disciplined. They haven't been taught 
the things of God. So our society has gone the opposite direction. Now we let criminals go without punishing them. God says punish them. He says punish them immediately so that they won't have repeat offenses and so others might hear and fear. Well, we should do that as a society. If somebody murders or rapes, they shouldn't be in prison for 10 years getting pardons. They should be hung in the town square immediately. And everybody else who wants to kill or rape will see that and think, maybe that's not such a good idea. But if they do something like that and disappear and then they get out early, they come out and do it all over again because they learn how the process works and learn crime even better in prison than they themselves understood before they went there. Prison is simply, simply the university of criminality. It's all it is. And it does no good, and it is not anything that causes crime to cease or even be lessened. It just teaches criminals to be better at their craft. God's way was to stone them with stones. And not only stone them with stones, but the public... The congregation did it. So it wasn't just somebody else hanging them by a tree, but everybody picked up a rock and got in on it. And that taught them in a very uh, dramatic fashion what would happen to them if they did the same thing. Now that ought to be the rule of law in the form of punishment in this country today. And it would not be the way that it is. There would be no repeat offenses, and they would not be teaching others to do the same thing. So we have to do things God's way. There is a balance. We have to discipline our kids. We have to take privileges. We have to paddle them, and it has to hurt. Punishment is nothing if it's just a tap. Punishment has to hurt to have an effect. But I've seen parents over the years say, well, okay, I should spank the child. So it's two fingers lightly applied, and it doesn't hurt the kid at all. No, it needs to hurt. They need to feel the pain of having done something that was wrong. And maybe pain will associate with their brain and they'll not do that again because they know it causes pain. Same with the stove. You tell them, don't touch the stove. It's hot. They don't believe you. So they put their hand on the stove. Well, the pain reaches the brain at that point, and they don't put their hand back on the stove. You have to do the same thing in perhaps a little lesser fashion. they got to feel the pain if they're going to learn. Otherwise, they use you and abuse you, and they manipulate you, and they get their way, and they go from father to mother to get their way. Well, Daddy said I could do this if you said I could. And they play politics with the parents, and they get away with it because they learned that it works for them. But the parents have to be united together 
and not let the kid use them. Because kids catch on to this from the time they're months old of how to do it. And boy, can they play. So there is a balance between discipline and not provoking them to act. And a lot of parents, when they use discipline, do nothing but provoke them to wrath. Because they only half do the discipline job. You have to understand that it's all about attitude. Everything is about attitude. If the child is cooperative and loving and responsive to you, after discipline, then you've completed the job. If the child is still pulling away or pouting or has a rebellious look on their face, you're not finished. It's like they used to say about going to the bathroom. You're not finished till the paperwork's done. You're not done disciplining a child until the job is complete. So if you've only paddled the child enough to make them mad or to make them pout or resent you, you're doing the opposite of what Paul is saying here. You're getting them upset and angry, but you're not finishing the job. Because when you punish that child enough, he will become sweet and compliable and respectful and loving. And then when you reach out to put him in your lap, he'll put his arms about you, he or she, and they'll be loving because their attitude has changed. And until that attitude has changed, you're not done. You might have smacked them a little bit to appease your own anger, but if you leave the kid angry, you're not done. We need to get that. Now, God is going to smack this world around. And he is going to stay at it until most of them are dead. We don't need to kill our kids. I'm not saying that. But he is going to punish this world with a great wrath, severely enough, that when they come up the second resurrection, they're going to say, I think I want to love you. I think I want to do what you say. I don't want any more of that. So come give me a hug. The way God is doing the world and the way we treat our children need to be pretty much one and the same. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And then he goes to slaves or servants. Be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, the fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Now there's one that none of us have yet experienced, I guess, where we were actual slaves are owned by another person. They had quite a bit of that at the time that this was written. People came into the church and were converted, but they still belonged to somebody. Now, that was true also in ancient Israel, and God regulated it back then. 
and told them if they were slaves, they were to do certain things and act a certain way. And slavery was allowed. Israelites having slaves of other peoples and even slaves of the Israelites who mismanaged and couldn't control themselves and therefore they became enslaved to somebody who would make them go to work in the morning, who would provide food for them, who would provide a place for them to lay down at night because they couldn't get it done for themselves. So they weren't on the street homeless. They were in somebody's bunkhouse, and they got up and went to work every morning because they belonged to their master. That was still going on in the New Testament, and it will be going on very soon on a wholesale level in this nation because a third of us are going to be taken into captivity and into slavery. And there you'll find yourself owned by somebody who bought you. There is some indication in the scriptures that Americans are so soft, so fat, so lazy, that nobody will even want to buy them. Worthless. Uh, in which case, they'll be executed. But if they're able and willing to work, then they'll be allowed to live. <clears throat> that's coming to the whole nation within I, I think I could safely say three years and it could be in the next three to six months we shall see but if you find yourself as a slave God tells you how you're to react you can go back to Joseph when he was a slave in Egypt or Mithraim and how he served his master with respect, with carefulness, worked hard. He tried to be a model slave, if you will, a model human being, and accomplished it so well he wound up in Pharaoh's court. So servants... You find yourself there, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ. So as a woman is to reverence her husband as Christ, if you're a slave, you reverence your master as Christ. In other words, our responsibility to anyone who is over us is to do it as we would unto God. Not treat them badly, not talk behind their back, not put them down, not be negative, but to serve them in the same way we would serve God. Now, God allowed people to go ahead and be in slavery in the New Testament church. And I suppose they worked it out with their masters if they were a right kind of slave to be able to go to Sabbath services, if you will. Because the slave master did not have to grant that. But if the slave was the right kind of person and respectful and responsive and worked hard, he was an unusual slave. And he might be granted certain opportunities that other slaves wouldn't get. Not with eye service, 
as men-pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Treat your master like you would treat God. That's a pretty tall order right there. With goodwill, doing service as to the eternal and not to men. So it's not like you're just serving a man who's your owner, but you're treating him as you would treat God. And that's how we learn to serve God. Because God calls us not only sons, not only bride, but he calls us bought servants and slaves. Christ redeemed us with his blood. And if we submit to him and, is, and accept his blood, then we, he is our master and we are slaves. He owns us, bought with a price, redeemed by his blood. So we treat him with all awe and respect, and he takes care of us, just as a good slave owner should. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man does, the same shall he receive of the eternal, whether he be bond or free. If in everything we do, in every relationship, we treat it as if it was the Father and the Son, we will be blessed. And we have to meditate on that, think about that, because it does not come natural. You do not naturally, as a human being, treat everyone you know as if they were the Father and the Son. We treat them with an awful lot less respect, with an awful lot less obedience, and we badmouth them, and we talk about them, and we cuss them, and we're negative toward them, whether it be somebody at work or at school or at church or at wherever it is. Every relationship, we should treat everybody as if they were God. Now, there is a tough one. But he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Treat them in every way as you want to be treated. And love God above them and yourself. Love him above everything. That's what it's all about. That's all Paul is saying here. And we need to think about that. How are my relationships? How do I treat so-and-so? Do I treat so-and-so as if he were God? That's what he says. Do good to your enemies and those that despitefully use you and persecute you. It's not our job to put them down. It's to treat them as sons of God, which potentially, well, they are as humans, but potentially and ultimately immortal sons of God. Every human being has that a possibility, that opportunity at some time to be that. And we need to treat them that way. Then he talks to the masters in verse 9. Do the same things to them. So there were people in the church who also had slaves. They were the masters. And they were to treat their slaves with love and respect in a very godly manner. All relationships need to be handled with that in mind. 
every relationship, whatever it is. Do the same things to them. Uh, forbearing, threatening. You don't put them down and threaten to punish them all the time. Um, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. He loves all. He doesn't deal with all yet, but he loves them all. And as he comes into contact with them, he treats them all with love and respect. You look at how Christ was when he walked the earth. He treated people with respect and kindness and gentleness. There were times he got after them pretty hard if they were doing something that desecrated the temple or there was clearly something that should not be done. But he didn't uh, continually berate them and put them down. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the eternal and in the power of his might. Recognize the greatness and the power and look to God with awe. That's what he says in the sample prayer. He starts it out that way. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand against the wiles of the devil. The whole armor. Uh, we need protection from Satan in every way because he looks for any chinks in the armor. He looks in any way he can get to us and pull us away, pull our aptitude, uh, influence us ever so slightly, ever so slyly to be contrary to God. And he's good at it. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And that's what we're dealing with with this new world order. And having done all to stand, we're not to be lying in a single position, letting the world run over us, letting Satan run over us, that we're to stand in faith before God. So that's the posture we should have, is stand up for what we believe and for God. That doesn't mean we need to spread it on people, but stand in the things of God. Having your loins girt about with truth, here's the things we need. We need the truth. When Satan is working with Christ there trying to defeat him, he played with the truth. He misrepresented Scripture. We have to stick with the truth and not let it be twisted away from us. 
and having on the breastplate of righteousness, righteousness protects our vital organs, our heart, our lungs. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The phones are getting to be here. Well, I don't... Oh, I see it now. Okay. I want to finish this chapter. We're nearly there. So your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. God's way is a peaceful way, and we should be living in peace as much as possible with all men. And then, above all, here's the, here's the biggest thing. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. So, what is faith? Faith is absolute trust and dependence upon God. And if we have that, we'll be able to stand against any and everything they bring against us, because we know God is going to see us through and see us into his kingdom. And even if we are killed, martyred in this life, we're going to be in the kingdom of God. He tells the last two, the witness against the world, they are going to be killed. And... They don't have to worry about it because three and a half days later they're going to be changed into immortality. So they have to have absolute faith in God's plan and purpose and go into battle in Jerusalem knowing that they are about to die and standing in God, faith in Him, that He will do what He has said He will do. That we need. And with that, take the helmet of salvation. That protects the head. The helmet of salvation. Salvation is the thing that should be in your head. It should be the focus of your head. Is being a part of the kingdom of God and his salvation. That's the main thing that should be in our head. Is the salvation of God. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. A sword is there to kill all opposition, essentially, is what a sword is. And the truth of God may destroy all enemies, all competition. The word of God defeated Satan when Christ used it properly. So you need to know the word of God, and you need to live by the word of God, and then it is there to save you from all kinds of trouble that will come upon you. I sure wish we could get that talking off the phone line. I'm trying. Okay. I'm trying, trying. I know. Okay. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So we don't just think of ourselves, but we pray and have supplication for all saints so that we're loving them as much as ourselves. We want them in the kingdom of God as well. And then he says, And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly 
to make known the mystery of the gospel. So Paul said, don't let me be a weenie. Pray for me that God give me the strength, the power, the boldness to preach the kingdom of God as it needs to be preached. We can't pull our punches. You know, you can preach soft and nice things and soothe people, but then the minute you start directing or saying things that are contrary to what they want, then you done quit preaching and gone to meddling. Uh, but no, it has to be said. The hard things have to be said. God said to Ezekiel, I'll give you a forehead of flint, because your forehead needs to be harder than their forehead. And when you butt heads, you better butt harder than they butt. Well, that's all Paul is asking for. I shall speak boldly as I ought to speak, but that you also may know my affairs and how I do. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the eternal, shall make known to you all things. So he says, I'm sending Tychicus. He'll let you know where I am, what I'm doing, because they didn't have telephones themselves. And it had to come by a human messenger. Whom I have sent to you for the same purpose, that you might know our affairs, what's going on in the work, and that he might comfort your hearts, to give you courage, strength, and comfort that the things of God are being taught and followed. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all you, all them, that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity, not just use his name, but love him and follow him in sincerity. Amen, or so be it. So he finishes a very powerful book here with a lot of good information that you and I need right here at the end as these things are coming in on us so rapidly and so heavily, and they're going to get very rapidly, much worse as the days, weeks, and months go by. So be prepared with the whole armor of God and be alive and alert and yielding and don't take God or anything that's going on on this earth right now for granted because Satan has in mind and he has his henchmen who are doing everything they can to kill you. Not somebody else, you, me. He wants us dead, especially those who are serving God he wants dead. He wants all mankind dead. When he's working overtime with the new government to accomplish it. So be alert and aware and serve God with all your heart, with all your mind, all your soul, and all your being, and you're going to be all right.